Welcome to the Get Cyber Resilient Podcast. I'm Gar O'Hara, and today I'm joined by Dmitry Alperovich, the founder and former CTO at CrowdStrike, currently executive chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, and more generally, a globally well-respected figure in cybersecurity. His long list of accolades include MIT Technology Review's Top 35 Innovators Under 35, Fortune Magazine's 40 Under 40 for Influential People in Business, and Foreign Policy's Top 100 Leading Global Thinkers. In the episode, we talk about what it's like to have a front row seat when history is happening at that intersection of cybersecurity and politics, the importance of know your customer or KYC regulations, ransomware, attribution, the imaginary new normal for cybersecurity, national and international approaches to cybersecurity, and the value of public facing audits. It's a packed episode, and given Dimitri's global influence in cybersecurity, we're very grateful to have gotten the time with him. Over to the conversation. Welcome to the Get Cyber Resilient podcast. I'm Gar O'Hara. Today, I'm joined by Dmitry Alperovich, uh, Executive Chairman at Silverado Policy Accelerator, and many people who would know as the co-founder and CTO of CrowdStrike, and also board member for many, many organizations. Good morning, Dmitry. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. Uh, we always start with a little bit of a bio, and I guess you know many people will obviously know <laughs> who you are, um, but it'd be lovely to hear you know, just from you, kind of your journey, how you got to, to where you are today um, with Silverado. Absolutely. I, I've been in cybersecurity for 25 plus years, been in small companies, been at huge companies uh, before starting CrowdStrike. I was at McAfee, which we sold to Intel and stayed at Intel for a few years, uh, for about a year. And then um, got the idea to start CrowdStrike really uh, because of one pivotal event. And that was the hack of Google in 2010 from China, um, actually 20, uh, 2009, uh, um, and uh, it was uh, unveiled in 2010. But uh, that was really the first time where we had seen uh, in a very public way nation state going after a private company. It seems crazy now. 11 years later, when we're reading about news stories of that, uh, you know, multiple times a day. But at the time, that was something unheard of. And, and there was a lot of, I remember um, to this day, uh, confusion about attribution. There were people that were raising questions about it. They were saying, this is a botnet. This can't be China. Uh, you know, nation states don't do this sort of thing. Uh, these literally were the arguments that some people were making at the time. But um, I was involved in that investigation, ended up naming it Operation Aurora. And I realized that that was a watershed moment um, and uh, that going forward, everything was gonna change. When you were dealing with a nation state threat actor that not only had the incredible resources uh, from, from the offensive capability perspective, but um, could also um, use non-cyber capabilities bribe people, blackmail people to gain access to networks, and most importantly, being able to target organizations in a very precise way um, and, and really uh, be like a dog with a bone, not let go until they're able to get in. That presented a completely new threat model that the industry had not yet observed, and that ultimately led me um, to um, co-found CrowdStrike, which... Um, uh, we initially tried um, to focus on solving that very important problem, figuring that if we could do that, then everything else would become easy. And, and it proved out to be um, a pretty good idea, uh, you know, 10 years later now. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, last year, um, having built you know an amazing company, having taken it public, uh, it was the right time for me to step step back. Uh, the company is doing phenomenally well now, and um, to focus you know the next phase of my life on giving back. And um, part of it is really taking advantage of the fact that I live in Washington D.C., uh, that I've always had incredible interest in policy and trying to move the country forward in the right direction and just never had the time to really spend on it uh, full time. And now I, I have the luxury to do so. And that's what Silverado is all about. It's about figuring out how do we enable the competitiveness of America and its allies in the 21st century in this um, time of renewed great power competition. How do we um, ensure that uh, from a government perspective, we're doing the right things to, to encourage innovation, to do the right things for our national security? And we're really working in three specific um, pillars. Uh, one is cybersecurity. Won't be a surprise to anyone that that's still an issue that's near and dear to my heart and is growing only more important um, when it comes to national security. Uh, but the other two are also very important. Um, second pillar is trade and industrial security. How do we make the right decisions as a nation, along with our allies, to promote um, economic prosperity through trade and, and through strategic investments? And then the third area is uh, what we're calling ECOSEC, the intersection between ecological and economic security during this time of climate change. How do we, uh, uh, again, leverage innovation? Um, how do we figure out ways to mitigate uh, impact of, of climate change and um, impact on our uh, ecology in, in a way that also moves the ball forward and promoting our economic interests. So those are the three things we're working on. And the goal really is to engage with policymakers in, in Washington and elsewhere to uh, make sure that we're doing the right things as a government in moving the ball forward. Um, for your Australian listeners, you'll, you'll be uh, perhaps interested to know that one of the people that we're working with closely um, and co-chairs of Strategic Council is your former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Um, again, the allies piece is very, very important to us. There's no way that America can succeed in this renewed, uh, what I certainly believe is, is a new Cold War with China uh, by doing it alone. We need allies. Australia is a key ally to um, to our country and uh, we need to find ways to work together uh, in a way that, that promotes both countries' interests and interests of our other friends. And Malcolm has been just a fantastic resource um, uh, in helping us think through these issues. And, you know, as you understand it, Malcolm comes from a sort of technology background and, you know, as, as somebody who has been involved, he's probably a particularly good choice for work in this area. One of the things I've heard commentary on out of the US and, and probably globally is the there's a bit of a disconnect sometimes with the people in politics. You know, they're, they tend to be maybe older people who weren't digital natives and they sometimes don't understand the technology or the, the threats at a, a, a sort of a, an intrinsic level. Um, what are your thoughts on that as, as somebody's trying to influence policy? How do, you, how do you get through to people who potentially don't actually understand the, the gravity of the situation or the implications of things like cybersecurity? You know, I think things have changed a lot um, in the U.S. At least, I'm not as familiar with the Australian political landscape, but in the U.S., we have uh, many new uh, people that have um, gone into politics. Uh, people that are—it's amazing to, for me to say this—but younger than me, 
that are in Congress uh, that are certainly digital natives. Um, many, many of them have served uh, in the wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and from the military decided to uh, continue engaging in public service. So they certainly understand those issues. And e even people who are older, um, all they have to do is pick up a newspaper, um, you know, look at uh, the television news and hear about cyber issues, hear about hacks like SolarWinds and others who've been uh, all watching over the last few months and understand that this is a big deal. They may not understand all the details behind it or what the right solutions are, and that's where we come in to try to help um, bring some contacts some education, but more importantly, policy proposals that we think can be helpful in, in getting uh, us to a better place. Absolutely. And, and one of the things you've commented on is this idea of know your customer, which, you know, it exists in financial industry in many different countries, and we're starting to see a push for that in, in technology. And, and for context, the, you know, some of the attacks that happened in solar winds or holiday bears as yourself and uh, some of the people in the industry are, are calling it. Um, you know, the, the attack was using cloud uh, infrastructure in the US, which US agencies then couldn't really get to because it's on kind of sovereign soil in, in America. How do you see Know Your Customer work for technology companies? And like, are there gotchas? Are there any things we need to be kind of thinking about? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so I think KYC or Know Your Customer plays uh, several key roles in, in helping to mitigate the threat landscape. One, uh, I think most important one is actually not even specific to cyber, but uh, related to cryptocurrency. Um, when you look at the cyber threats we face today, the number one threat by a mile is ransomware. Um, when you look at what's taking place, I almost hate to use this term, uh, obviously in the middle of a pandemic, but we really face an epidemic of ransomware today mm -hmm. worldwide. Um, and the saddest thing is it's the most vulnerable uh, organizations among, amongst us that are falling prey, hospitals, school districts, small businesses that can be put out of business by a single ransomware attack. And the situation is getting worse and worse. Uh, the uh, ransom payments that they're demanding are now in the tens of millions of dollars. It's really uh, a huge problem everywhere. And the number one reason why we've seen this explosion in ransomware cases has to do with cryptocurrency. If we didn't have cryptocurrency, if we didn't have an anonymous way that these criminal groups could get paid um, and um, uh, orchestrate these attacks, uh, we would not have this issue. It's no, uh, it's no coincidence that ransomware emerged as a big threat after the invention of Bitcoin. You certainly had isolated cases of ransomware before cryptocurrency. Uh, but in those days, you know, you had to leave a message saying, please wire me the money to this bank account. As you can imagine, that would be pretty easy to trace for, for law enforcement and, and, and they, they have. And those individuals would get caught or those payments would be stopped in transit. So it was just never popular among criminal groups because they couldn't execute it until they had a way to sort of pseudonymously collect payments. And KYC for cryptocurrency exchanges um, which um, was actually proposed by, by Department of Treasury um, in December of last year, and they're now working through the issues of how to implement that, are really key to stemming this, this epidemic and uh, making it much harder for criminals to get paid, and there is a, as a result, removing their um, incentives to, to keep orchestrating these attacks. So that's number one. The second one was really an interesting idea 
And uh, when I first saw it, uh, which it was released by the White House literally on the last day of the Trump administration, so uh, most people did not notice it. Uh, but uh, when I saw it, uh, I had not heard of this idea before, and I was like, wow, that is really, really innovative. So what happened is that during solar winds uh, or holiday bear operations, as I call it, uh, as well as um, in the exchange tax uh, a few months ago, uh, but also many other attacks, we have seen adversaries appreciate that if they're going to um, buy um, or steal infrastructure in the US from US cloud providers, US hosting providers, it's gonna slow down American response. It's not gonna stop it, but it's gonna be much more difficult for US intelligence community, even US law enforcement to get access to that infrastructure. Uh, if it's a foreign intelligence threat, then they have to go through what's called a FISA uh, warrant process. Um, and that, has um, you know a number of bureaucratic steps that, that slows down uh, the process. Even if it's a criminal action, they still need to get a warrant. So all those things make it easier for adversaries to move quicker and, and slow down the, the ability of the American government to, to respond, to share information, get intelligence on what's taking place. And the adversaries clearly have taken note of that and, and are leveraging that. So one way to respond to that without sort of further violation of, of civil liberties, um, uh, which was certainly uh, most Americans would, would oppose, is to drive those actors away from, foreign, uh, from domestic soil onto foreign soil. And um, this proposal to require cloud providers to perform know your customer checks on uh, people trying to register new accounts is very interesting because it would make it much more difficult for foreign intelligence services to provision accounts from shell companies and the like and, um, and use them for those attacks. It wouldn't make it impossible. They could still find ways to do it, but it would raise the cost substantially to the point where it probably would not be worth it for them to, to keep doing it. So very interesting idea. As you can imagine, the cloud companies are not thrilled uh, and we'll see what happens, but uh, um, it, it was a very innovative way to approach a problem. Definitely. And you've you sort of pointed to the idea of collaboration here. I mean, the ransomware, as you say, it's absolutely in pole position. Um, it's hit the national conversation in Australia. It's sort of both sides of the political divide are producing papers on you know how to tackle it. It's become slightly politicized, very, very slightly, I would say, because I think everybody recognizes how important this is to to fix. It's having a you know a meaningful impact to our economy. What do you kind of see or what are your thoughts on the, the national versus international approach and the collaboration that we presumably need, but also then the government versus private enterprise involvement when it comes to the problem of specifically ransomware, but probably broader cybersecurity problems? Well, like almost every cybersecurity problem, the solution is not national, it's international. And... If we're gonna make a dent in this problem, we have to absolutely leverage our partnerships with allies. Um, you know, when I look back at, at some of the more successful operations that the US government has done in the area of botnet takedowns, they've, they've been taking botnets down going back to the late 2000s. And um, a lot of these operations have not succeeded because they would do a technical operation, try to take down a botnet. And then three months later, the criminal groups would uh, uh, resume the operations, they would retool and reconstitute the botnet. 
Uh, and then a few years later, they realized this and, and decided to combine the technical takedowns with law enforcement action, with um, ideally arrests, um, as they've done in many cases, but uh, in the absence of that, with actually being able to shut down infrastructure physically. So in one case, I know they went into Ukraine with um, uh, working with the Ukrainian law enforcement and were able to take down key servers that were used uh, in a particular um, botnet um, that was peer-to-peer -peer but had central command servers that um, the adversary had used, the Game Over Zeus botnet, um, in that particular case to keep control of that peer-to-peer -peer network. That was critical to the success of the takedown. So all of these things require cooperation. Um, they require use of numerous authorities beyond just national authorities that these law enforcement agencies have. It also requires work with the private sector. At CrowdStrike, we had participated in a number of these botnet takedown events, um, providing our technical experts that could do the actual planning and, and execution of, of the botnet takedown um, and allowing the law enforcement people execute, to execute it with their authority. So you have to figure out how to bring industry along for the ride here and, and, and not just uh, as a bystander or an observer, but really a key player in the planning and execution of these types of things. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a whole conversation, I suppose, about how to respond. One of the things that has kind of sparked in my mind, just based on the potentially the work that Silverado is doing, you know, we've, we've talked about the essentially the response and takedowns, it's technical, it's law enforcement. Generally, there's some sort of economic incentives in many countries where there's maybe not opportunities for employment. There's social issues that cause people to go and do things that for us are, you know, they're abhorrent and they're they're horrible, but they're driven because of, you know, lack of money and lack of opportunity. How do you see policy playing into that and maybe more preventative measures at a socioeconomic level to potentially, you know, in an ideal world, magic wand stuff? Uh, you know, take away some of the incentives and the sort of drivers for people to go and you know, sit in, set up these these organizations that are, are doing the attacks. And that's probably less nation state stuff, but more than just pure economics and, and criminal organizations. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too, too optimistic on that front. Crime has always existed as long as we've had organized societies. It will continue to always exist. We're talking when we're talking about the types of money that these uh, criminal groups are making tens of millions of dollars on a single ransom event, and they can execute multiple of these every day, um, that traction of that money, th that's not a socioeconomic uh, lure, right? Uh, that's not someone in poverty that just wants to survive. That's someone that wants to drive a Ferrari, that, that wants to yep. buy a yacht. Yep. That, that's a different problem altogether. Um, there are certainly poor people that are engaged in cybercrime, but when you look at a lot of these kingpins, a lot of these um, transnational criminal organizations, um, they're not doing this because they're poor. They're doing this because um, they know that they can earn tremendous amounts of money. And many of them are present in countries that happen to be adversarial to the United States, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and they're being supported um, and in many cases uh, helped by um, the nation states um, in which they reside. Absolutely. And you talked, it's many years ago now, uh, I'll assert 2013, you know, when it comes to, to this stuff, generally it's the sort of asymmetry that exists in terms of the investment efforts and the return of investment. As you said, it's tens of millions of dollars at this stage. Um, your, your talk was nearly a decade ago. Like, have you sort of seen anything in that equation shift? And, and if so, what? 
Yeah, I have. I, I, I think that we are finally arriving as an industry at the right mindset for how we should approach these problems. Like for many years, for literally decades, we have taken the approach of we're going to build the biggest fence we can around the perimeter of our networks and try to stop people from coming in. And that was just never going to work. It doesn't work in the physical world. It doesn't work in cyber. Capable adversaries will always find a way around them. They'll, they'll bring a ladder. They will uh, you know, bribe someone on the inside to let them in. They'll find some sort of vulnerability that you don't even know about to try to get in. And um, uh, the better approach um, that people had started to appreciate um, after the Google hacks and, and some of the other events I was involved in is to assume that they're in, right? Assume breach uh, mentality where you are going to instead invest most of your effort, not all, but most, into trying to find them within your network, hunting for them and ejecting them as quickly as possible, right? And, and it all becomes about speed, speed of action, mm -hmm. speed of detection, speed of investigation, speed of response, and rinse and repeat. Um, that, that's not to say that we shouldn't invest in perimeter solutions, we shouldn't uh, invest in prevention, but the uh, investments today are completely out of whack. We spend 90% of our efforts and money trying to prevent things and only the remaining 10% on trying to uh, identify the failures in that prevention and respond. This needs to be completely flipped. Um, yes, invest in prevention, 10, 20% of your budgets and time and personnel, 80% focus on detection and response and, and uh, uh, doing so rapidly. And that's how you win. That, that's what I'm seeing from the best organizations out there that are dealing with these intrusion attempts from sophisticated actors, nation states and others on a daily basis. And, you know, those those attacks that are happening on a daily basis, Holiday Holiday Bear, you know, is a pretty big a big example for uh, SolarWinds, um, as, as many people would know it. Do you see that as a new normal? I suspect you're somebody who's been involved in things in the background and what appeared to be maybe a huge and different type of attack for somebody like you wasn't, um, but but maybe I'm wrong there. Like, do you see what was happening in December and, and this sort of what feels like a difference? Is that actually a difference? Like, is this a new normal? Like the, the sophisticated attacks that we're seeing? Well, it has been the new normal for years. Of course, uh, we, we just have not been paying close attention to it. Uh, but, you know, attacks like NAPETIA, the most destructive attack in history, uh, was mostly targeted at Ukraine. So only a few international companies got hit. I worked with some of them. And uh, it was a supply chain attack. They came in through compromise of, of a software update for an accounting tax software that they use in Ukraine. There have been many others attacks. Chinese have leveraged supply chain for many years. Um, they've leveraged security software updates. Uh, people may recall CC Cleaner, you know, a tool, uh, um, security tool that whose update was compromised and used to deliver <coughs> malicious code. There have been very sophisticated intrusions into Juniper back almost eight years ago now, I think, uh, where they had modified source code uh, for Juniper VPNs to enable them to gain access to, to networks. So this is not new. Most people just have not paid close attention to it. Uh, the scale um, and sophistication of this attack was notable, but uh, it, it was not unprecedented. Yeah, I think about a you know, physical attack, you can see it, right? We can, I can visualize a, 
a bomb blowing up a building or somebody physically attacking somebody else. Like that's a picture I can paint in my mind. But when it comes to cyber, it's ones and zeros. It's it's slightly abstract. Do you feel like there's some level where that that's part of the problem that it sits in the background and people don't fully comprehend the the scope and the scale of what's actually happening? Because sometimes it feels like there's full scale cyber war happening in the backgrounds, but as citizens, we kind of walk around and, you know, we drink our coffees and feel like everything's okay. Yeah. I, I don't think we're in cyber war. I, I don't actually even believe in the concept of cyber war. I think there's war in which cyber plays a component, but mm. um, I, I do think that uh, it, it is difficult to capture people's imaginations on cyber. And sometimes it's interesting to see what captures specific people's imagination uh, you you had these big attacks, the Holiday Bay or SolarWinds attack, and uh, the exchange hacks happened within a very short period of each other. And I recently wrote a piece in, in Lawfare arguing that one, the Holiday Bear one, was actually a traditional espionage campaign that was done in a fairly responsible manner that they, even though they had access to over 18,000 victims, they voluntarily shut down their access to 99% of those networks didn't try to do anything destructive, went primarily after government networks or IT and security companies that they could use to go after government networks. Like the types of things that you would expect from a nation state conducting sophisticated espionage. And then contrast that with the Chinese exchange hacks where they hit everyone on, on the planet that was running exchange uh, uh, that was vulnerable to these attacks, uh, not just compromised their, their network, but left these web shells that were often password, not password protected or uh, protected with default passwords that could then later on be used by others like criminal groups to execute ransomware operations against these victims. Completely reckless, very dangerous. And yet the Holiday Bear SolarWinds hack captures everyone's attention. We're talking about it, you know, months later, exchange hacks are starting to sort of um, uh, dwindle in our uh, collective minds, not really covered much in the press. Um, and in part, I think it's because of the targets. In SolarWinds, it was sexy targets. It was um, security companies like FireEye and others uh, that were targeted, uh, government agencies, Department of Justice, Department of Treasury, uh, very, very sexy stuff. In exchange, there are hundreds of thousands of victims, but many of them are small, think tanks, school districts, et cetera. And that's not sexy. What did you think of the FBI's work uh, sort of proactively going in, removing web shells? I loved it. I thought it okay. was incredibly creative. Um, the people that are sort of wring their hands of like, oh my God, they could have done something. Uh, well, first of all, what they did was very, very simple. Technically, it's a literally a HTTP GET request um, to, to, to a web server. Um, with a delete uh, file command, um, there's virtually no way that you could really mess it up. And certainly what the Chinese did originally in compromising those servers was way more dangerous. Uh, and then leaving them open to ransomware actors is, is completely unacceptable. So to wring our hands about, uh, you know, the, the highly remote, if not completely zero chance that FBI could have messed it up, um, it strikes, strikes me as focusing on the, on the wrong issue. Uh, but no, I, I, th I thought it was great. Um, the FBI uh, has done um, things of this nature before. They, um, they, they, as I mentioned, they used to do um, botnet takedowns and selling, sending kill commands to victims that they would sinkhole. Uh, but this was taking it a step further and actually 
sort of remediating um, the malware, in this case, the web shell from those systems. Of course, they can only do it in the US uh, with law enforcement authorities, but uh, uh, I thought it was uh, a great step forward. And, and they only do it, did it as a, la- as a measure of last resort. They, they tried to notify people that they identified as having these issues. Some of those people were able to clean it up and only when they exhausted that uh, option, they decided to take the next step, get a court order, court order which, which was very ingenious in, in a legal sense because it was actually a search warrant court order that allows them to access uh, lots of machines. But in this particular case, they were not actually searching those machines, they were executing the delete command on them. But in the, in, in the legal framework, of course, there is no uh, authority to do that. So they had to use a search warrant authority. Yeah, clever and, and a good outcome. It, it, it sort of points to some of the stuff that's happening, I think, at a, a government level in Australia. We have a national critical infrastructure bill, um, which is being worked on. And I know Biden's kind of got some stuff, you know, the 100-day plan for protecting the energy infrastructure in the US. Um, how do you see that play out? I mean, it, we, we're in Australia, there's discussions around the uh, proactive assistance of governments with, you know, agencies and, and entities that fall under the bill. So healthcare, uh, some of the universities, um, you know, those those kind of energy, obviously, um, where the government can come in and, and sort of proactively, uh, air quotes, help based on, you know, what's perceived as a threat to the, the nation. You know, the FBI case, good move. How do you see that go forward and the potential for it not to go well? Or do you feel comfortable with with that sort of an approach by governments? I'm comfortable with the FBI did in this particular case. Um, but, you know, I'll tell you, in America, we're much more allergic than, than, than you guys to government help. Uh, we still remember the famous phrase from Ronald Reagan saying, there's no uh, uh, scarier words in the English language than hearing that I'm from the government and I'm here to help. So to America, that resonates very strong, uh, strongly. Americans, uh, I know uh, in, in Europe and Australia, the, the view is quite different. Uh, but, you know, we've always had this individualism culture where, you know, obviously given our history of fighting the British to form the country, uh, we, we've always been suspect of the government and potential for tyranny. But, uh, you know, more problematically, we've had the government demonstrate great incompetence in cyber. Um, not the FBI, but other parts of the government. Uh, you know, it's no coincidence that the government was compromised thoroughly in the SolarWinds hack, uh, that um, we've seen cases like OPM breach and others that have been devastating uh, to security. So when industry hears government talk about what industry should be doing to protect their network, uh, this um, does appear to many to be highly hypocritical and people living in a glass house and throwing stones. So um, I do think that when it comes to critical infrastructure, there is a big pushback uh, in industry, in in America at least, to say, wait a second, like demonstrate that you actually have the ability to to do this well before I'm going to let you onto my network and have an impact on my business. Um, And um, that's why we have not gone as far as you guys have on that front. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see well, yeah, where that lands. Another thing you've, you've talked about is this idea of uh, third-party audits of vendor software. And, you know, that, that idea of kind of publishing the results of pen tests of, you know, security audits of software. And when I was reading that, I was thinking, that's actually a really, it's a, obviously a clever idea, but you get this potentially the result of like trickle-down security where 
a vendor that's going to go after you know federal contracts or government contracts has to be audited, has to publish the pen test results, so it forces good security. But then private enterprises, smaller businesses who are buying that same certainly SaaS platforms or, or security will benefit from those audits. Um, do, do you think that's something that will happen? Like, is that a, a realistic expectation that we'll see those kind of, I know it sort of happens already to a certain extent, but where do you, where do you see that going? Yeah, so the administration is working, uh, the, the Biden administration, on an executive order um, that will hopefully come out um, in the in the coming coming days, uh, maybe weeks, um, and and they look hard and they had to obviously after after Holiday Bear at the supply chain issue, and um, you know one of the things that they they saw is that you know if you're selling the, these critical enterprise software to the government like what SolarWinds was doing and many others, software that runs with administrative privileges on the network. Um, software that um, perhaps is a cloud system that um, has access to highly sensitive data, maybe software that touches source code, you, you can kind of define what critical may mean, that there needs to be higher level of standard for that than for a vendor that's uh, you know, selling M&Ms to, to, to the cafeteria uh, of some agency. And um, the, the traditional approach that the government has always taken was to say, well, here's, you know, an encyclopedia worth of regulations that we're going to need you to, to meet, and, and we're going to audit you on that. And, and that compliance-centric approach has not gotten us safer and uh, has, in fact, made things worse. Um, my good friend, Heather Atkins, who runs security for Google, who I worked with back during the Aurora days, uh, had a great line back then that is still true today, that compliance is the death of security. Once you turn security from a risk management decision to a checklist of, yes, I did this, no, I didn't do that, um, that's how you um, start losing the fight. And with um, uh, what I've proposed, and we'll see, see how much of that gets adopted, you focus not on checklists, but you focus on real outcomes. Yep. You force testing of security, realistic testing through pen tests through maybe code audits uh, by certified third-party vendors of these critical software providers um, on a regular basis so that you actually know how they can withstand you know, an infiltration from, from you know, capable uh, firm that's going to emulate real adversary tradecraft, for example. Um, and then I thought it would be nice to take that a step further and not just provide that report to the government, but, but force those companies to publish it publicly so that everyone can benefit from taking a look at how well they're doing in response to these attacks. And by the way, part of the, the motivation uh, of making it public is, is that it will also encourage these companies to fix um, their results very quickly. Because you can imagine, let's say, um, you hire a company to come in and do a code audit of your software, and inevitably they'll find issues. Every piece of software has issues. Well, if you know that in a month you will have to provide that report to the government or you'll have uh, to publish it publicly, guess what? You're going to rush out to fix those issues as quickly as possible, have that vendor retest you, give you a clean bill of health so that the report shows that you're in good shape. So it creates an amazing incentive that to actually fix the, these problems, not just identify them uh, quickly. And, and the original aspiration for this was um, what New York is doing right now in the restaurant business, where 
they started posting their health inspection reviews out uh, on the front windows of those restaurants. And magically, in, in a matter of months, uh, quality of, of food in New York has gone up. Uh, and uh, there have been a lot fewer uh, food poisoning cases. Uh, I, I'm sure part of it is due to COVID and people just eating less in restaurants as well. But nevertheless, um, um, it clearly that, that type of public shaming has an effect. People stop working with, with organizations that um, they know are not doing a good job on food security or on cybersecurity. And, and that can have a great improvement on, on the whole ecosystem. How does that work economically? So one of the things we have in Australia or used to have was a thing called IRAP certification for working with federal governments. And one of the, the commentaries or comments about that was that the, the cost of being audited and going through the process was prohibitive for smaller organizations. So larger companies and larger techno technology providers could could do it because they had the, the sort of capital and the finance to to fund it. So it kind of got, got them ahead. But does that sort of stratify the provider's into government based on the the sort of the financial implications of being audited or pen tested to that standard and then remediation costs as well. And I'm, I'm, I support the idea. I think it's a great idea, but what's the practicalities there in terms of, you know, the, the, the ability for smaller organizations to compete for contracts? Well, uh, I'll tell you this. I mean, it's unfortunate, but if you're providing critical software that touches source code or um, you know has administrative privileges on the network. If you can't afford an external pen test, then you probably can't afford to have great security architectures mm -hmm. and uh, and and be allowed to 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 operate in the space, right? So uh, you know we do have standards, and you know if you, if you're participating in in building a nuclear power plant. You, you know, you, you can't just be a guy with a dog that's going to come in and say, well, I want to bid on this, right? There'll be yeah. lots of standards that we'll rightly ask of you. And maybe it means that a small business won't be able to, to participate, but some things are much more important than, than enabling anyone um, to, 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 to uh, be a part of, of something when you are talking about really these critical enterprise vulnerabilities. And then, and broader than that, then one of the things you, you sort of talked about is the cost of doing security. And one of the, the things I've, I've had many conversations on this podcast about is the idea that as as companies and probably most specifically startups are trying to get to market and get to a point where they, you know, they've, they've sort of hit a good momentum. Often they can externalize the cost of security. They just go to market, they innovate quickly, but security tends to be a little bit of an afterthought because you can sort of get away with it and there might be some incidences, but you know, it's a PR exercise um, that you can hopefully get through. What, what do you, what, if any role would you see kind of regulatory or regulations or, or legislation playing to kind of level the playing field where it stops being a competitive advantage to not do security? Like, is there any role for policy in, in that? Yeah, no, I, I do think that we need to identify beyond just suppliers to the government, but other, sectors where we want to insist on a much higher level of standard of security. You know, nuclear power industry is one example. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty obvious, but, but many others as well. Um, uh, air transportation as an example. Um, and um, we, uh, when, when there is threat to life, threat to national security, uh, we need to have much higher standards. But again, it's not about a checklist, you know, please meet these you know, NIST certification requirements, mm. that is much less useful than let us come in with a very capable pen test team, red team 
um, that is going to try their best to get into your network. And let's see if you can identify them. Let's see if you can thwart them uh, from accomplishing their objectives. And if you can, good for you. Uh, I don't care how you did it. What's most important is the outcome. Uh, but if not, then there's clearly a problem there that uh, you need to resolve. You, you're somebody who's been doing security for quite some time now. And I'd be kind of interested to hear, given that you've been present and part of you know those events that you've kind of alluded to even during this conversation, some, some big stuff over the years and in the intersection of cyber and politics. Um, be very keen to hear like how, how that's been. You've had a front row seat in, in some fairly historic events. Um, so that, but also the transition from air quote cybersecurity practitioner leader into really what's become a public figure. How, how has that been? Well, uh, luckily, I'm still pretty involved in the industry. I'm still involved with lots of companies uh, as a board member and uh, working closely with the management team to help grow uh, the company um, uh, with some of them very involved in technical strategy, et cetera. So uh, that keeps me grounded and, and, and in touch with what, what, what's going on in the industry. But a lot of my time is now spent on thinking, okay, technology, we've got that. You know, the solutions have evolved dramatically um, where we really have phenomenal capabilities. How do we now ensure that people are using them the right way, that the government is providing the right incentives and the right regulations to elevate our overall security? Um, and that's where I see a huge gap. And um, that's where I'm trying my best these days from a nonprofit uh, role to, to, to really achieve an effect. What's the what's the most interesting discussion you've been part of? Or the like, what's the most interesting room you've been in in the last kind of two decades? Oh, interesting room. I mean, I've been in many interesting rooms. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, some of them I can't even talk about. Yep. But um, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, obviously, the whole um, experience over the last few years when we've seen these devastating attacks, you know, the Russian interference in our elections, the Petty attacks, the attacks on the Olympics in, in South Korea that uh, uh, many people don't even remember now uh, from Russia. Also uh, very, very um, impactful. The, the North Korean attack on Sony, where I was the first person to come out with public attribution of that to North Korea back in 2014 and just got eviscerated by many people, sort of armchair quarterbacking, who had not looked at the data, had not analyzed malware and saying, no, 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 this is an insider. Um, you know, it, it is quite amazing. Uh, I, I've been thinking about this a lot that in the cybersecurity industry, we have people that have zero involvement to a case, but yet feel like they're completely qualified uh, without any data to comment as experts on what actually is going on. And I'm not sure um, that happens as much in other areas uh, of national security. It is. Uh, it's a. It's always been an interesting one because I, I, mean, I listen to a lot of security podcasts, and you hear that all the time. You know, everyone's kind of got a, a theory, and um, it almost becomes like a who done it, or you know, it's like an Agatha, an Agatha Christie novel where people are kind of trying to figure it out. Uh, you know, who did it, but without sort of being on the inside uh, track for sure. Um, one last question, Dimitri, as we kind of round it out. Um, you're, you, as you said, you're still. Uh, very active in the security industry. I'd be very keen to get a sense for you, like as an investor, as a you know person seeing the cybersecurity industry as a whole. 
what are the areas in the IT landscape these days that are fascinating to you today? And maybe what you see as the, the future or where this is all going? I think the biggest trend that we're not um, coming to terms with as, as an industry fast enough is this whole DevOps uh, change and shift in, in software development. Um, we have not fully appreciated that engineers are now in the driver's seats and most companies are rapidly becoming software companies, right? As Mark Andreessen said a number of years ago, software is eating the world. I mean, he was absolutely right. Um, I've heard it from so many CEOs of Fortune 500 companies that are you know, manufacturing widgets or involved in these traditional brick and mortar businesses. And they're t telling me, no, we're now software companies. Uh, you know, I think some of them, to, to some of them, it's an aspirational goal more than reality today, but they're all trying to move into that space. And that changes fundamentally the role of the CISO. The CISO, that uh, you know, role that's still very new, I think the first CISO uh, popped on the scene you know, just 25 years ago or so. Um, and only recently have they started to get a lot of power inside the organization to be able to actually present to the board, to be able to actually have a say in, in the architecture of the, of the network. Um, you know, now they're losing that power and they're losing that power because the network is disappearing uh, and COVID has just accelerated that trend where everyone, you know, can work from home. There's no need for physical infrastructure. You can work in the cloud. Uh, but at the same time, the key asset that you're protecting is your software. And who's in charge of that? Not the CISO. It's the engineering leaders that are building and product leaders that are building that software. So um, to the extent that the CISO is involved, they're involved as a strategic advisor, um, trying to get influence, trying to make sure that there are the right coding practices in place that, you know, at this rate, rate of rapid change, when you're pushing out releases on an almost daily basis, that the right things are being done uh, to make sure you don't, you know, push out uh, secret keys to your cloud infrastructure that will compromise everything. And, all these sorts of things that you have to worry about these days. And uh, a lot of the security industry, I think, is still thinking about the traditional of like, how do I protect this network? Yep. And then the network is disappearing. Um, so um, the, the big security companies that are going to evolve uh, over the coming years are going to be the ones that are going to figure out how they can market to developers, not market to the CISO, and, and, and provide solutions that actually make the job of the developer easier um, in, in enabling them to build software in a secure fashion. Fantastic. With that, um, we're, we're just about hitting time here. So on that, on the crystal ball, uh, question, we'll, we'll leave it there. Dimitri, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us and um, very, very much appreciated. Thank you. Take care. And thanks so much to Dimitri for that conversation. And as always, thank you for listening to the Get Cyber Resilient podcast. Jump into our back catalog of episodes and like, subscribe, and leave us a review. For now, stay safe, and I look forward to catching you on the next episode.